0: We are now in the fourth week of a study that we're, we're going through the Apostles' Creed, which is one of the, is really the oldest uh, kind of accepted statement of the Christian faith that exists. It's over 1,600 years old in this summary of what we believe as Christians. And so we're not studying the creed per se, or preaching the creed but we're using the creed as a framework to to get into the scriptures each week and see what is at the very core of Christianity. So that's what we've been doing now for a few weeks. So week one, we just looked at that beginning phrase of the Apostles' Creed, I believe, and just stating that Christianity is a, is a, creedal, uh, is a creedal faith, a creedal religion. It's, it's based upon... I believe, not I do, or I have done. And so our confidence isn't in us and our performance. Our confidence is in Jesus and what He has done. And so we rest and trust in Him. And so the second week, we looked at that first statement as the creed is kind of formed by the, our triune God. And so the f- second week, we looked at, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and this glorious, majestic creator, God, and then last week we looked, and then we began to look at the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And, and so today we're looking at the next two phrases in the Creed, which continue the Creed's description of Christ. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Mary. Now, this isn't going to be a Christmas sermon in some in that sense. It's not going to be a sermon about the Holy Spirit either. We're going to get to him later in the Creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Um, And this this isn't going to be a sermon about Mary, um, not because we have anything against Mary, but she's not the point. Um, It's not going to be a sermon defending the virgin birth against those who are who are critics of the Bible or Christianity. This is, this is a sermon about God. Uh, that's a good thing in the church, right? This is a sermon about God the Father uh, sending God the Son into the world by means of God the Holy Spirit to accomplish our salvation. That's what we're going to be looking at. And so there's going to be three points, and we're going to come back to this. Our Internet's down, so if you're trying to get on your Facebook feed, I'm sorry. It's just not uh, you're bored already. It, 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 um, so I didn't get the, no, couldn't get slides up here or anything, but the, the three points we're going to come to these really towards the end will be sort of our concluding statements. But the incarnation is about God taking the initiative to save. God taking the initiative to save. The incarnation, secondly, is about God doing the seemingly impossible to save. And then third, the incarnation is about God providing the inimitable Savior, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But the story of the Incarnation, Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit, being born to the Virgin Mary, it doesn't begin in Matthew, where we read. It doesn't begin in Luke. Those are the two Gospel accounts that give us the details of Jesus' birth. It begins in Genesis, where we started this morning. So in Genesis 1-2, to where we started in January, working our way through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we see God creating. God creates everything. He creates everything in the universe, and it culminates in God creating man. And, and there's this refrain that's just on repeat throughout that creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. What is it? It's good. He created, and it's good. He created this, it's good. He created that, it's good. And, and, and He creates everything. It's good, it's good, it's good. It's very good. And so the picture we get is of this universe with, in its incredible beauty and in this, in this rhythmic peace to it. And, and, and God's glory is on full display. And, and the first man and woman, they're flourishing in this new garden world, this paradise with, with God walking with Him in, in, in close intimacy. And this is, this is Genesis 1 and 2. It's beautiful. And then in Genesis 3... We know the wheels come completely off that, that, that <coughs> sin enters the world through through the rebellion of that first man and woman, and the whole universe is ruptured the, the, the gravel of sin is thrown into the machinery of the world, and everything is affected. nothing is is not untouched by the the effects of sin in our in, in the, the Genesis three world we now live in. Nothing is untouched by sin's entrance into the created order. Everything. But God enacts His plan to make things right, to redeem what's been corrupted. And so after that judgment was pronounced upon Adam and Eve, this gospel, this earliest form of the gospel is first announced. And we began by reading that. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so this is this, this judgment on the serpent, but this gospel promise in its earliest form. And so when Eve gave birth to her first son, she named him Cain. You know what Cain means? Here he is. That's what it means. And so she's thinking, this is that promised offspring that's going to crush the serpent's head and is going to break the curse that's been pronounced he was not the one. He was not. And so from that moment on though, the, the serpent began this epic struggle, struggle to stop the advance of the messianic line, to stop this line of, of this offspring of this woman who would one day crush the serpent's head who was promised to. And so if he can manage just to break one link in that chain of succession this, to, to the snake crushing seed that God had promised, maybe, just maybe, He could could overthrow God's redemptive plan. Or or if he could just so corrupt the line through intermarriage and through idolatry, eventually there would be no one left to carry on this this line of the promise. And so we see examples of both of those strategies at work, those demonic strategies in in the next few chapters of Genesis. And so in Genesis 4, we see Cain murders his younger brother Abel why it's his, he's in this jealous fit of rage because God accepts Abel's sacrifice and, and not Cain's and so he he kills his brother so so did the serpent then succeed in destroying God's promise and stopping his plan not at all in Abel's place God gave Seth which means his name means elect one And so Seth would carry on his hope to another generation. Seth's line is noted for this. Cain's line is noted for only their worldly accomplishments. Seth's line is noted for this. Then people began to call on the name of the Lord. And so in spite of, though, these new hopes that are raised by Seth, okay, maybe he's the one. His family line eventually becomes uninterested in the Lord and becomes increasingly corrupt. And so the picture looks very bleak. All humanity thoroughly corrupted within just a few generations. By the time we get to Genesis 6, it, it just looks so bleak. Is it, is it done? Is it over? Has the serpent won at last? No, he hasn't. Because there is one. There was Noah. Noah. And you remember, a son of God who, who's still believing in the Lord in the midst of this godless generation. And so he's a sinner who stands before God only by divine mercy. And 7 speaks of Noah like this. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The serpent lost another round. God's purposes stand. So after the flood, Noah's son Ham, he's expelled from the covenant family, much like Cain was. But Noah's believing son Shem becomes this heir of the promise. And God also promised that, that, that Shem's brother Japheth and his descendants, they would, they would be brought into the tents of Shem. They would be in, in, in recipients of the blessing of God. And so, But that line also, it became exceedingly corrupt until there's only one man left, Abram. And so Abram, he's isolated in this land full of superstition and idolatry. They're worshiping moon gods. And, and, and so the promise just to be, seems to be hanging by the slenderest little thread. And it looks like it may be done. But God calls Abram out of that darkness, makes him this patriarch of the line of faith, and so from Genesis 12 to 20, we see Abram, he's, he's kind of vacillating between faith and unbelief, but God shows mercy to Abram in spite of his waffling faith. And he showed, he showed Abram one night, he shows him the night sky, and, and he tells them that his offspring are going to be as numerous as those stars that he's seeing in that, uh, that unpolluted night sky. And then while Abram slept one night, God appeared to him in a vision. And he initiated this this covenant ceremony that was common in the ancient world. And he understood. And so when treaties were made, when a covenant was made between two parties, one representative of each party would would walk between uh, these carcasses of animals that had been split in two. And there would be this aisle. I know it's kind of a grotesque-seeming ceremony. Uh, I don't think we're going to include this in the wedding ceremony, right? Okay, no. Um, But... They would would walk between these carcasses. And in in, in doing that, they're basically calling that fate upon themselves if they're unfaithful to this commitment. And so in this vision, though, of the Abram has, God is walking alone between those two halves. There are no other parties involved. This is all his doing. And and God God is taking all of the burden of salvation upon his own shoulders in doing that. And so, so God, God makes this promise to him. And God promises him a son to inherit this promise. Your, your line's going to go on. Now, Abram's very old. His, his, his wife is barren and is very old into her late 90s. And, and so Abraham, Abram is trying again, waffling between faith and unbelief. So in unbelief, they tried to take their salvation into their own hands. Trying to help God out. And so they, they turned to their slave Hagar for a child. And, and she gives birth to Ishmael. But God had made it very clear. It's, the promise is not for Hagar to Hagar. It's to, that a child of promise would be born to Sarah. And so in spite of their unbelief, God graciously, relentlessly uh, provides, determines to provide for them. And so in Genesis 17, Abram, whose name means father, is, he's, he's renamed by God Abraham, father of many and, and finally in Genesis 21 old Baron Sarah gives birth to a son Isaac and <clears throat> the text says it happened at the time of which God had spoken at the appointed time that, that God has this timetable of redemption and, and it's set in motion before the creation of the world and, and yet it's being made known and worked out in history that's what's happening all right, so Ishmael, I realize we've got a long story here. We're going to, we're getting, we're building basically to the conclusion of the sermon. But I, I think this is so important. Ishmael and Isaac, they grew up together and, and the time comes and God tells Abraham to send Ishmael, uh, the older son, away from the covenant community. He was, he was not the son of promise. He was the son of bondage. And, and so these, these two lines could not be confused. And intermingled. And so just like the sharp contrast between the seed of the woman. And the seed of the serpent. Uh, just like that was clear when Cain was persecuting Abel. And, and, and the offspring of Ishmael. Ishmael. They would become perennial enemies of Israel. And you can see this throughout Israel's history. And so, so just when it seemed. The promise is now secure. Abraham and Isaac. Uh, Abraham has a son. Isaac. The son of promise. Everything seems to be And in in place, the messianic line is protected. What does God do? He commands Abraham Abraham, to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him. And so God's command seemed to contradict his promise. Isaac is the son of promise, he's Abraham's only son. But Abraham trusts the Lord and and that God's promise will win in the end, and it does. God steps in. When they reach the place of sacrifice, you know the story, Isaac asks "This dad, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham replies, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide the lamb. So just as the knife is lowered and Abraham is about to sacrifice his son, the angel of the Lord intervenes and stops the ordeal. And there's a ram that's caught in a bush and suddenly it appears and, and it takes Isaac's place on the altar of sacrifice. So the serpent's salivating. Maybe this is the moment of victory. The son of the promise is done. But no, he loses again. Isaac had two sons also. Esau was his firstborn. And then he had Jacob. Now God chose Jacob, not the firstborn, but he chose Jacob to be the heir of the promise. Even though that seemed to contradict all human reason at the time the firstborn son was always the one who got the lion's share of the inheritance but but uh, and, and and that would have only made sense esau was on, quite honestly better he was morally superior to his brother jacob jacob was a deceitful schemer uh, but but nevertheless jacob was 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 the one that god decreed jacob I have loved esau I have hated and so the promise what that tells us is the promise isn't about merit it's not merit-based. It's freely given by God's own merciful will to whomever He chooses. And we'll tie that up in a moment. Esau's descendants, just like Cain and Ishmael, they tried desperately to destroy God's chosen seed and tried to stop this plan that God was accomplishing. Joseph was the second of Joseph, second youngest of Jacob's sons. He received a vision from the Lord, proclaiming him to be the air and Jacob trusted that that was God's will for him and so out of jealousy that was reminiscent of Cain in that same line Joseph's brothers threw him into a well to die had the serpent finally triumphed? here it is there's, here's the hopes and here he is dying in a well no not at all God rescued him and eventually his brothers came to Egypt begging for relief because there was a famine in the land and and they turn to the the Prime minister uh, as it were and and in egypt and and find that it's no less than their own little brother that they thought was dead years before and Joseph tells his brothers, "We know you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good you know god's God's unstoppable purpose, and the struggle goes on I mean again and again in the Old testament we find this this warfare between the spiritual descendants of the serpent. And the, and the offspring of the promise. And it's acted out with, with tremendous intensity. And so as, as we read through the Old Testament, we're just we're left waiting in breathless anticipation for how this is going to turn out. I know we are familiar when we, we kind of see these disconnected Bible stories. But that's not what it is. There's this, it's a this struggle between the seed of, 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 of the woman and the seed of the serpent that's going on and this is playing out and we're, we're waiting, we're waiting for this one who's promised to come and will crush the head of the serpent and will fulfill this gospel promise that was made right in the beginning in Genesis 3.15. So, so is, 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 who, who will it be? So we get to Moses. By the time of Moses, people of God are in Egyptian slavery and, and yet they're growing in number rapidly. And Pharaoh's worried that his nation, uh, the, that, this, that this slave nation, uh, the Jews, might become so numerous and so strong that they could be a threat to Egyptian national security. And so he commands that every, every son, every son born to the Hebrews be thrown into the Nile. So how, how possibly could the Messianic line Survive this kind of mass murder of like this. Would there be a single son of promise left to carry on this hope? To carry on the line of the Messiah. Well, there was one Jewish woman who, upon giving birth to her son, placed him in a little box made of reeds and set him by the riverbank. And Pharaoh's own daughter discovered this little box, a floating box, and spared the infant's life and took him In and adopt as his adopted mother. And eventually Moses became this this patriarch of the promise, and he led God's people out of Egyptian slavery and right to the promised land across the desert. And so, again, the serpent schemes failed. And we think, okay, maybe it's Moses. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is the time. But after being set free by God's redeeming grace, Israel rebels against the Lord in the wilderness. I mean, they're at the base of Mount Sinai as God is giving His law to Moses and and speaking to the people, and there they are down at the base, engaged in all of this drunken uh, idolatry, and they're 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 and, and worshiping around this golden calf. Oh, so so there's this period when they're in the wilderness and God's. Judging them and saving them. But at the same time, he's purging the people for himself. And so God does allow Moses to see the promised land before he dies. But that's it. He just gets to see it. He doesn't get to enter it. And so the blessing of leading the people in is given to Joshua. Whose name means the Lord. The Lord is the one who saves. The Lord saves. So now in the promised land, Israel's governed by judges. But even the new land that God gave them that God's people they grow corrupt and, and to the point where in Judges twenty one twenty five there's this statement everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So there's this whole new generation that has this amnesia. They've completely forgotten God's saving grace. They've completely forgotten how he's miraculously delivered them out of Egypt and that he should be their only hope and they're doing what's right in their own eyes and just a little example of that you have Abimelech who was Gideon's son. He he organizes this mass, uh, th- this massacre of his own brothers in order to secure his place as ruler of Israel. And so he, he hires assassin to slaughter all 70 of his brothers. Don't get any idea, boys. Um, Judges 9.5. We see this. So it looks like, again, maybe this is the end. Maybe the promise is done. Judges 9.5. But Jotham... The youngest son was left, for he hid himself. So he's in this mountain hideaway. Jotham's kind of the only son of promise left. He cries out for judgment, and finally one day it comes. He's, he, he's, he's This woman drops a stone from a tower and crushes Abimelech's head. This is how God answered his prayer. Which you think, again, seeing the Bible as a story, it's a sign of what's to come for the serpent. It's, his head will be crushed so through Jotham the seed is once again preserved by the Lord later after all that God had done to prove that he was Israel's king he was, he was the ruler. He was the one they should look to for help. He was the one who would lovingly shepherd, lead his people. The people said, no, we want a king like the nations around us. They demanded a king like the pagan nations that surrounded them. And so, her, so, so God relented and God gave them a king. And the first king that he gave them was Saul. And it was disastrous. He was a man of divided loyalties. And, 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 and so as Saul was reigning, when, when young shepherd David uh, came and defeated Goliath in the big showdown there, and, and he received the approval of God and the people, and then Saul, we find out, he's filled with this rage, murderous rage, and he persecutes David, the one that God has anointed to lead his people. And once more, again, God interrupted the enemy's designs and preserve that line through David. And so we think maybe it's David. Maybe he's the one. So David's anointed king. He won many battles by the Lord's power, drove out enemies all around them and drove out idolaters from the promised land, won Jerusalem for Israel. and, And it's looking good. But before long, even David, the man after God's own heart, he fell into grievous sin, committing adultery with Bathsheba, and worse yet, he sought to cover up his sin by by purposely putting Bathsheba's husband at the front lines in battle one of his loyal officers so that he would be killed in battle. He murdered him, and as a result, David's royal house became a royal mess it was It was had all kinds of consequences, even after the king confessed his sin. He, he, and, re, and received God's pardoning mercy, Psalm 51, it, the consequences went on. Again and again and again, the Messianic line was threatened. The enemies were often God's means of, of disciplining His people to bring them back, but, but let me just give you one ugly example from that, that period. You have King Ahab who institutes Baal worship in Israel. Idolatry. He's, he even sacrifices his firstborn son, placing his corpse in the foundation of this pagan temple that's erected. Ahab's wife, Jezebel, he goes on, she goes on a campaign to murder all of God's prophets. And, and so she's r- running them down, left and right. But there's this young prophet named Elijah who's hidden away in a cave. And so as he's hiding in the wilderness, he prays, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. First Kings 19.10 Through this, through this one man, God would eventually drive out the prophets of Baal and, and condemn Ahab. But, but, but again, it, gets down to, it just looks like it's about to get snuffed out again. But no, in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness, God is loyal to his promise. Hope lives. The promise is intact. Nothing will stop it. And so we've skipped over, I know it feels like we've covered the whole Old Testament. We haven't. And we've skipped over many, many, many other examples of this. We're just kind of hitting some, some some high notes, like skipping a rock across a pond. We're just we're just touching the surface, but there are all these key figures in redemptive history. And and and, and but we've seen enough to make the point that's highlighted by the writer of Hebrews. After he lists all of these people off of that, that are in God's uh, promised preserved line, he he makes a summary statement. This is in Hebrews chapter eleven, verse thirty-two. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, um, and de- of David and of Samuel and the prophets who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, or made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy." wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And listen to verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what, God, what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So what is the writer of Hebrews? What is he saying? What is he telling us when he says that these heroes did not receive the promise? I mean, it's like Eve. Eve. She thought she had given birth to the Messiah when Cain was born, only to find out she'd really been she had given birth to the, what was essentially the first Antichrist. Or, or Moses. He, he leads Israel through the wilderness towards the promised land, but he himself never crossed the Jordan River and entered into it. And so these Old Testament saints, they're saved by looking forward to in faith the fulfillment of this, of this promise. And so what becomes clear is, is that the Old Testament, it's not about these heroes of faith. I know that's often how we treat the Old Testament, like these Bible stories. What can we learn? Be like David. Be like this person. That's not it. Because the best among them, they're corrupt. And they're weak in faith and in obedience. It's, they're not perfect examples to hold up. No, the real hero is God Himself. It's God who is faithful to His promise in spite of every obstacle that, that, that's thrown up against Him. God promised an offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, break the curse, and throughout the Old Testament, we see God keeping that hope and that promise alive. And it's against that backdrop that, that we see the way the New Testament begins. We get to Matthew chapter 1, and so to borrow words from another Christmas hymn, that long lay the world in sin and error pining. And then what? Till He appeared. Till He appeared. And so, just as, remember, Isaac had been born to Abraham and Sarah in the, in the fullness of time at the appointed time. So, Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, When the fullness of time had come, when the right time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, as fulfillment. So so we get to Matthew 1, and after he has carefully laid out this genealogy of Jesus Christ from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through Judah, and then finally leading to Joseph, Mary's husband, Matthew says that before the consummation of their marriage... Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And again, as we read through, you see, Joseph assumes, okay, she must, not a, she must not be a virgin. There must be some other guy. What else could it be? But an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for He will save His people from their sins. And so in, in Luke's account of, of uh, Jesus' birth, there's this similar account, but it's, it, the focus is more on, on Mary. And so there's this angelic announcement to Mary in Luke chapter 1 and verse 31. And the angel says to her, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Again, see what's, what's the, the connection of those words to everything we tried to sum up and looking at from Genesis, Genesis 3.15 onward. This is the one... This is the one. This is the one we've been hoping for, longing for. and But frightened, Mary asked, how is that possible? How, how will this happen? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, Son of God. And so Jesus, God's promised Messiah, the serpent-crushing, snake-crushing offspring of Eve that God had promised, was then conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary as we testify when we confess the Apostles' Creed together. Well, the serpent did not take that well. As in the days of Ahab, there was a wicked king sitting on the throne over Israel at this time when Jesus was born and Herod was this, really this petty feudal lord that was basically ruling just by permission of Rome over Palestine and so he he gets word from these visiting dignitaries foreign dignitaries the wise men that there has been one who's born who is the king of the Jews and so these wise men they've come from far to worship this child king and 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 but Herod's he's not going to have that he's he's not willing to surrender his title to This unknown child. So he he comes up with a plan. And just like Pharaoh's satanic massacre of all of the sons of Israel, uh, Herod slaughters all the male children around Bethlehem. Certain that, that, that that would eliminate any contenders for the throne. But again, once again, the serpent strategies are thwarted. God's plan triumphs. The Lord had already told Joseph and Mary to take their child and go to Egypt until Herod's death. And so this fulfilled Numbers 24, eight and Hosea eleven one. Ultimately fulfilled these verses where it says, Out of Egypt I called my son. And so I say all of this. This is all this long extended introduction, which is most of the sermon, I realize. It's by design. Don't worry. Don't freak out. It's going to be a two-hour sermon. I say all of this to help us see that the, the truth of the incarnation of Christ, it's not, a, it's not a standalone story that we can just think about at Christmas. It, 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 it's actually the beginning of the climax of redemptive history. That's why we confess this together. All that anticipation that's building since Genesis 3 is, is realized when God sent His Son into the world, again, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the virgin mary to suffer under pontius pilate be crucified dead and be buried and be raised again on the third day this is what it's pointing to and so i want to make these three statements and then we'll we will we will continue to sing together Uh, so the first statement is this is that the incarnation is about god taking the initiative to save this is God taking the initiative. We, we were alienated from God because of our sin and because of our guilt and because of our rebellious hearts. The Bible describes us as lost, as blind, as dead, without hope, without God in this world. I mean, all kinds of imagery that are used. We, our foolish hearts were darkened. We, we didn't understand. We, we weren't seeking Him. But God, in that condition, God took the loving initiative to come near to us. save us when we were utterly helpless on our own and so without him taking that initiative we would be lost forever and justly so we were we were so helpless we couldn't do anything to save ourselves we couldn't move toward him an inch and so the virgin birth it's teaching us what this glorious truth that, that goes over over the whole of Bible salvation is of the Lord it's of the Lord. When God wanted to save the world, He had to take the initiative to send His own Son. God does it all because we couldn't do it. Couldn't do any of it. Salvation is entirely by grace. And this is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world, and even the non-religious. All other religions are centered on man. Man. And man's efforts, and, and the focus is on man's attempts to appease, to, to, to satisfy, to find approval, to gain right standing, or to reach God by our efforts. And So you have in, in Islam, the five pillars of Islam, you have uh, among Hindus, you know, the, 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 being baptized in the Ganges River, and, and that's going to wash away your sins. You have non-religious versions of this where we just try to be good enough by some, some code, internal, external, we, we want to find ourselves to be acceptable, to have peace, something like that. But Christianity is radically different, radically different. It, it is not focused on man and man's efforts, but upon God taking the initiative to redeem a people for himself. That's our hope. God is an initiating God, and God's initiative reaches this climactic moment in the coming and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God sins. The Father sins. Jesus comes. The Holy Spirit conceives and empowers. And this is incredible, incredible news for us. God has not abandoned us in our mess. He leans in. He takes the initiative to save us. And listen, brothers and sisters. Listen, please. The more, the more you understand that you did not save you, but God saved you, the more confident and assured you'll be in the God of your salvation. Conversely, the more distinguished a role you think you played in your salvation, the more you'll question your salvation. And so it's just, it's just so important to see, and this is what the testimony of Scripture abounds with, because, because this is the reality. You know you, I know me. And and you know that if you're involved, there's a chance you're going to mess it up. But if God saved you, and if salvation is truly of the Lord, he, he cannot fail. And there's great, there's great assurance there. And so the incarnation, it's first, it's about God taking the initiative to save. It's his doing, and we just say, What grace. Second statement The incarnation is about God doing the seemingly impossible to save. It's doing the seemingly impossible. So the virgin birth its not just unlikely, it's humanly impossible. This just doesn't happen. This is a true miracle. This is supernatural. And Mary Mary knows that it's not humanly possible. So Mary says to the angel, No, no what? I'm going to do what? That, that you, how, how, how are you possibly going to accomplish this? What's going on? I've never been with a man. How are you going to do this? This is her question. She's, she's scratching her head. Because the virgin birth is absurd humanly speaking it's impossible no, nobody accidentally gets pregnant without another human being in, being involved yet that's exactly what happened and since we know it's impossible then, and since we're saying it's impossible there's again Luke one thirty five. the angel testifies nothing will be impossible with God that's a, that's a profound statement nothing will be impossible with God God's power knows no bounds. God, God is revealing here. Um, and 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 what does that do? That God's power should should calm our anxious, fretful, fearful, angry hearts, brothers and sisters. For us, to, this truth to settle upon us. And this is this is one of the messages that comes with the incarnation. God God is the God of the impossible. I mean, just let me apply it in our context. Our, our culture, what we, the world we live in, in, in Western culture, in our day and time, it's constantly looking for something to be angry about, to be outraged over, to, to, to be frustrated about. You, you, do you notice that? If, you, if you're not on social media, maybe you don't see it as obviously. But if you are, you see it. But we see it. It's, it's everywhere. It's in the news. We want something to be outraged over. Can you believe this? Have you seen this? This is absurd. I can't believe this. And so we have the hashtags and we, and we post these things and we pass these things along and we, we expect everybody to be outraged with us. We're going to boycott this. This country's going to hell in a handbasket. You know, uh, I'm appalled at this. And, and on and on and on. This is kind of the way, the way people talk and think. And we thrive on this pessimism in our day and age. So we we want to be very aware of what's wrong with everybody else. Their views, who they are, and their culture, everything else. And and what is that? That reveals something about us, doesn't it? (coughs) Listen, in light of this, in light of our cultural context, Christians ought to be so strangely and curiously hopeful. They ought to be hopeful people. Because our God is an initiating God. And our, our God, there, there's nothing that's impossible for Him. And so we have reason to be biblically optimistic. And, and biblically hopeful. I don't mean in a silly, pretend, just kind of emotional, frothy way. I, 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 I played basketball in high school. I wasn't any good and our team was terrible. Um, so let me just get that. as not a glory days story or something like that. We my senior year we moved up in a division and so we just got we did not win a district game the whole season. We beat some little farm teams in the preseason just to feel better. But we we got destroyed most games. I mean, losing by 50 points, that's just, just it was miserable. And yet the cheerleaders were there every game. And honestly, <laughs> I felt for them cuz you're, you're getting beat by 30, 40 points and there's like two minutes left on the clock and they're still cheering their hearts out and, and you're thinking, what's the point here? Like, there's, it's, not, it's not possible to come back and, you know, we can't do it. Just quit telling us we can. Um, we, we've lost and we, we need to own it and we need to move on. And, um, I'm not talking about that kind of yeah, rah, rah, um, Uh, Christianity where we we were ignorant of the real real difficulties of life in the Genesis 3 world Um, this is not weak trite optimism I'm talking about hope and joy that's rooted in our knowledge that these things are true brothers and sisters deep rooted joy and hope that understands that nothing is too hard for God Nothing is impossible for Him. I mean, we, we should stand out in sharp contrast to the pessimism in the world that surrounds us. I mean, I, we're coming into an election cycle, and I mean, we're already in the middle of it, and I know some are angry, and some are scared, and, and you're just wringing your hands about what's going to happen, and this seems to be most people, at least the way that it's portrayed. But I'd say, what an opportunity for the church. This is not a time to be frightful as a church. This is an opportunity for the church to stand out as a community of people who hope in the Lord. Our confidence is not in the outcome of an election. Our confidence is in King Jesus. And so, not to get swept up in outrage and fear. Look at me, God has never panicked. God... God is never worried. God is not ever wringing His hands unsure what to do. He's never had to huddle as a trinity and say, okay, uh, I'm not sure what went wrong, but we've got to figure out how to fix this. Never. We can. Nothing is out of His control. So breathe, brothers and sisters. That's true on a national scale, and this is true with whatever you walk through in your life. In Psalm 42, starting in verse 5, the psalmist, David, is speaking to himself, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I heard somebody say it like this, we must learn to win the argument with ourselves. If these things are true, if, if God is this God who initiates and and our salvation and is move towards us when we were weak and helpless and unable to move towards him. If he knows nothing of what is impossible, we have to learn to win this argument with ourselves. Inside of every one of us there's this pessimistic, complaining, doubting, fleshly, unbelieving residue in our hearts because of the fall. And it wants to point out things that are not true. It wants to look to half truths and full lies and and to confuse And and you see what David does here. He argues with himself. He argues argues down that part of him that is pessimistic and doubting and unbelieving. And he says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. Why are you buying into this? Put your trust in the Lord. And so we have the opportunity to do. And the incarnation reminds us of this. The last statement and this will be brief the incarnation is about god providing the inimitable savior i know that's a word that maybe we don't use often inimitable I N I M I T A B table okay it just means not capable of being imitated or this is another definition i thought this so good or unusual as to be impossible to copy God didn't look through a stack of resumes and, and trying to find one that could accomplish his saving plan. No, there was only one. There was only one who, who was qualified. So God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, was sent into the world, uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity, in, Mer, in, in Mary's virgin womb, the, the God-man, fully God, truly man. And so he, in order to save, he had to meet these three conditions. He had to be man. He had to represent us. He, an angel would, couldn't do that. Couldn't die for our sins. He must share, truly share in our humanity. He must be God. He, there, there, no mere mortal could bear the infinite price for our sins. He must be innocent. A sinner couldn't die for the sins of others. Because he would have his own guilt. And so because Jesus is born of Mary, He's truly human. Because He's conceived by the Holy Spirit, He's fully God. Because He's born holy, He is sinless in thought, in word, in deed, in every way. And so thus He is fully able to stand in our place, taking our guilt, our shame, our punishment. He could pay for our sins precisely because He had no sin. He had no guilt of His own. He knew no sin and so he became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so Jesus' birth, therefore, it establishes his identity as this son of God, the promised Messiah and our Savior because he's conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So when the angel told Joseph again that the baby Mary was carrying was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the very next breath, again, what does he tell him to name him? It says, name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Lord saves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have demonstrated yourself to be a God who takes the initiative in saving us and sending Jesus. We're thankful that you demonstrate yourself to be a God who does the seemingly impossible to accomplish out salvation. And we're thankful that you sent Jesus, the inimitable Savior, the one who cannot be copied, the one nobody can take his place. But just what we needed, you provided at the right time uh, so that we might receive the adoption as sons to all who believe in him. Thank you for these glorious truths. May we not um, be afraid, realizing that you are sovereign over all. May we not um, be stuck in our doubts. Uh, realizing that you take the full initiative to save us and, and that we can confess, Lord, salvation is of you. Our hope is built on nothing less than your blood and your righteousness. It's not us. It's Christ. And so help us to confess that even now as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.